So this evening I'd like to speak about resting the mind before it falls into extremes. Resting the mind before it falls into extremes. And of course this is all about equanimity. A heart that can stay stable, that can stay balanced, that doesn't have to waver away from wisdom and compassion, that uh, can stay big enough to encompass what goes on in our lives outside of us and inside of us. And whether we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, or older, like a lot of us are, we we see in this day and age that there are causes and conditions for uh, the opposite of equanimity to arise if we don't understand how to deal with the ups and downs of this world. There's a lot of uh, opportunity to swing back and forth with all that we hear in our own communities, in our own families, in, in the world today. So it takes a large measure of equanimity to have a heart that's big enough to hold all of this. Because all of this, as Steve mentioned somewhere along the way, is not going to go away. We know that. As much as we wish for it or we idealize uh, the world to be, our families to be, um, ourselves to be, it's, it is the way it is. There are these ups and downs. And the first step in our spiritual life, uh, one of the first steps is to just accept the fact that this is how it is in, in our lives as human beings. And when we can accept that fact in our own lives, it's much easier to accept that in the lives of others, to see that yeah, I've gone through that too. I can see why it is the way it is for you because we touch back into our own experience. It's what allows the unconditionality of our care for ourselves and others to come about. Without equanimity, we wouldn't have that the possibility of having metta said that without equanimity, metta could not truly happen, this unconditional love. So more about that later. It also supports this restfulness of mind, which greatly supports the clarity of mind. When the mind and heart are at ease, when it's restful, when it's relaxed, there's this ability to see more clearly into life into the nature of how things are and not to be run around by our ideas of how we think it should be. Um, So we were able to live in this world with more of a spacious balance and within that spaciousness there is that balance and then there is that inner quiet that we can touch into. And it doesn't mean that we don't care. It means that we care enough. We care enough to be still and quiet and work on that balance within us so that when we respond to what's happening in the world, in our families, it can come from that place of of deep care, of really, really deep care, 
of balance so that uh, we're, we're not excluding any side. We see all sides of the situation of, um, of quietness so that when we do respond, people can take us seriously and we don't feel like, you know, our people don't mistrust our response. That is a subjective experience. If, if any of you have touched into that experience of inner balance, equanimity, that quietness that has a steadiness that can see clearly, those are all ways that we can describe it. Maybe one stands out greater than another in our response, in our lives. But uh, we see those qualities within us. We see those qualities within the people that we respect in the world, uh, the great leaders of the world, and those that are the silent leaders of the world, all the grandfathers and grandmothers and mothers and fathers of, of this world, how they lead with that kind of deep inner quiet, that balance often described as an even-mindedness with a quietude that's uh, feeding it, an even-mindedness. So this even-mindedness doesn't mean that nothing's going on. It's not like a dry aloofness that um, we can sometimes think is happening when people are equanimous. Or maybe we think we're equanimous and, you know, we're saying, I'm cool about it, but we're really not. You know, it's just kind of like some thick covering over fear in our hearts or over some deep attachment. It does mean that a lot's going on, that the heart is quiet enough and balanced enough to take in everything so that we can assess it clearly. And it it takes in whatever's going on without saying, this, what happening on, the, on this side is wrong or bad or we have a judgment about that. And this, what's happening on this side is, is not right and that person is da-da-da-da-da acting out of um, whatever, however we're judging that person. There might be discernment, of course. We can see clearly, but we're not taking one side over another or shutting one side out uh, because we prefer another person or group's way of acting. So there's a lot going on because there's this ability to take everything in and not exclude anything. As the Dalai Lama puts it, it's this um, immeasurable impartiality So it it can take more and more and more and more in of the situation. So there can be the usual ups and downs that we have in life or we see others have in life, but there doesn't have to be a big drama around it. Maybe it is dramatic, but we don't have to add to the kind of drama that brings delusion into the picture, that brings a kind of... um, covering up of the bare facts of the matter and bringing in all our emotionality, that which isn't wrong 
in and of itself, but sometimes it it pulls us away from what we need to see clearly so that we can respond clearly. Some of my Dharma colleagues and friends describe people who have this large measure of equanimity as having a lot of radiance and warmth to them. So it's not at all dry and aloof, but it it really feels like this um, warmth that has a connection, the possibility for connection, and this radiance that is not devoid of, of light, the light of wisdom. So the Dharma and the Buddha gave various examples from nature that just thinking about it sometimes gives me um, metaphor to live into and to feel myself as part of nature live into. Like the sky or space that can contain everything and anything without um, having it stick and there was one Tibetan master who described um, something like equanimity. He wasn't really referring to equanimity, but it will do. As um, like the sky or space, that when if, if paint were thrown up into the sky or space, the space would accept it. It would be there, but it wouldn't stick to anything. It doesn't resist, it doesn't reject or react. It just allows it to be there because it is there, because it's part of what has arisen uh, naturally. It it may have arisen through ignorance, through delusion, through uh, wrong view, but nevertheless it has arisen and it's there. So this sky or space allows a transience of all of life to happen. And um, this is what we're all part of and what we're all seeing is this transience of life. We, we can't deny it. We can't get away from it. Getting away from it, denying it, uh, is ignorance, is delusion. So if a response is necessary, yes, we, we do respond. But it's not through blind reactivity. It's through careful consideration. It's through taking everything in, through assessing clearly what's going on, and then taking action or saying the words we need to say if they are necessary, saying them in the right timing, doing it in the right timing, with the right person, and all of those guidelines that we know as good human beings. So there's a space in the heart to actually say, to ask, and then to receive the answer honestly. What's going on right now? What What is this all about in my heart? You know, when something has gone difficult, in our lives and um, we're pointing the finger out there and we can finally come back to ourselves at the right time and say what's going on in my own heart and and to be able to accept the reality of that uh, 
of whatever is going on in here. It allows for that honesty. If greed is there, if attachment is there, we can cop to that. We can say, yeah, that's happening. So it's, it's not only assessing what's going on out there, all sides, to see all sides. That also includes this side, our side, the inside, what's going on within us, to be able to assess that with a lot of clarity. So if there is this clear seeing, and we know that there's greed, hatred, delusion there, then we can refrain from acting or saying. But if there is this clear seeing within ourselves that sees that for now there is an absence of greed, there's an absence of hatred, there's an absence of delusion, there's there's a good enough seeing of what's going on, then we respond, then we react. So I wanted to make a big... A clear point of that equanimity doesn't mean we just stand there and say this is how it is right now and do nothing. Equanimity allows that bigness of heart that sees everything so that we can do something. So more about that later. So then our response can be a powerful healing, maybe, or a powerful nourishing of the situation that leads to more harmony for ourselves and for others. And it doesn't lead in the opposite direction. So it's not like this precarious balancing on a razor's edge where, you know, we're afraid if we tip a little this way, we're going to get off balance, or tip a little that way, we're going to get off balance. It's more like a very wide stance Another a metaphor that is used by the Buddha is like a mountain, a mountain with very wide base. There's a lot of stability there. So we don't feel like we're pushed, we're, eas- we're easily pushed over one way or another. We feel like there's a lot of groundedness. So sometimes in the stories it talks about the various weather patterns that a mountain goes through, um, weather patterns of wind and thunder and lightning and uh, snow, cold and heat and dryness and rain and fire, all of that. And yet the mountain is stable enough to be with it. So yes, in a mountain's case, it, you know, it doesn't respond with some kind of action in words, but it does respond with, with its natural way of healing itself when something happens. But the point here is that there's a stability that one feels like a mountain. There's a stability that one feels with that wide stance and that groundedness and that ability to see and to know and to be honest about all the weather patterns of our lives. Sometimes, you know, it it feels like thunder and lightning all around in my life. And sometimes it feels like there's a lot of heaviness, there's a lot of uh, 
rain, that heaviness that water brings. And sometimes it feels like it's so bright, the sun is so hot and bright that I feel like I can't see and get a headache and all of that is happening. Feel like the weather patterns are happening in my own life um, every day. And this is how it is. It's just how it is. The weather patterns of the body, the weather patterns of the heart, the weather patterns of the mind. And sometimes I go to that metaphor because it goes to a place where it's not so personal. Sure, I have to do something about it, but first, can I, can I accept it without reacting to how it's going on? To Sometimes I don't feel so clear. Sometimes I don't feel so energetic. And sometimes... I feel sad, you know, the heaviness of, of the water element. And sometimes there is the fire of anger. It's not making an excuse for it. It's not saying that it's, it's leading to harmony, for example. But it's saying that, yeah, this is how it is in the weather patterns of my heart right now. See it clearly, accept it honestly. So the various... Uh, seasons and within the seasons the weather patterns can we see that with equanimity can we accept that it's said that equanimity is a crucial part of developing loving kindness and compassion with compassion it's said that we couldn't act truly compassionately unless equanimity were at the forefront because then we'd really be just reacting, acting possibly out of our old patterns. If it's painful, we act out of patterns of pushing away or ill will. If it's pleasurable, we act out of the habit pattern of wanting to keep it there, holding on with attachment or greed. But when equanimity is present, With compassion, for example, equanimity sees things clearly and then acts from that clarity. Let's compassion act from that clarity. It's said that metta would dwindle to a mere sentimental feeling if equanimity were not nourishing or supporting it. No, we go through this phase in in new relationships. It doesn't have to even be a love relationship. It can be a relationship between oneself and a pet, a new pet or a new friend where we're in this honeymoon phase and then, you know, we have our first big misunderstanding or our first big fight. (laughs) And, um, you know, I see in myself that Sometimes when that happens, it happened uh, in the last six months, a dear friend and I were so harmonious, many years of our life, 20 years now, everything just going on so that we just had a huge amount of appreciation and love for each other and we're basically on the same page most of the time and when we weren't it was like okay you know that's how it goes for you and it goes differently for me and uh, something came up in our relationship 
It actually had to do with me defending Steve about some misunderstanding. And so I just really went to bat for, for Steve. And um, it caused a misunderstanding between me and, and one of my best girlfriends. And I realized how much I was hanging on to that everything had to be okay in our relationship in order for one, us to have one. It was actually a growth in, in our relationship with each other to be able to open to, yeah, this happens too. You know, we, we have this, this little misunderstanding. It was more than little. And we can live through it. We can understand it. We can say, this is part of our lives. And we can go on and we can still love each other and be harmonious with each other. So sentimentality or attachment to how we think it should be, basically, doesn't keep a relationship together. It's, it's understanding that um, we go through it, we stay with it through the, through the bad times, so to speak, and the good times. We have this unwavering ability to stay with this unconditionality of our love. Even though we may lose it for a while, we, we can come back there. It always can come back there. So equanimity gives metta this unwavering loyalty to being with our process in life, to saying, um, this is part of it too. Accepting the ups and downs, the different phases of confusion, hardship, are times when people make a mistake or they, they, um, they make a mistake and they even won't admit they made a mistake. And somehow we still come through it and we say, okay, I can take that too. So it's what makes metta unconditional. There was a time when um, our daughter uh, and Steve's stepdaughter went through the difficult phase of her life as we all have those phases and this was a time in her life when I was probably in her difficult um, category, you know, in metta. And when I did metta, she was definitely in mine because it was hard for me to open my heart to her during that time of her uh, hormonal phase. And don't worry, she gets royalties for all these stories I tell about her. Um, her by the way, her next royalty is a trip to Burma, which um, we're thinking about so she can go. So she made sure that I'm still telling stories on her and she can collect. Just last week we went through that. So I had to add during that time an equanimity phrase to my metta phrase. So this is what I was talking about earlier where we'll weave metta and equanimity together where I had to say, may you be peaceful and knowing that she wasn't and knowing that I couldn't get attached to the result of 
that offering of love that I give her in my metta, I had to add on to, may you be peaceful, I added on, and this is how it is right now for you in your life. In other words, you're not peaceful, but I still wish all the best for you. I still wish this, I still offer you this goodwill, not ill will. At least I'm trying to offer you this goodwill. May you be peaceful, and this is how it is for you right now. You're not this way now. So that was the equanimity part of it, opening to that part of it. And more recently, with all of my children and then their children, I have this way of coming to some deep rest in my heart by saying to myself, and it works for me, it doesn't work for everybody, all beings have their journey. Because I just see so many, my, my own grown children and their partners who are like my children too, and then their children and good friends around me, all beings have their journey. I do the best I can, give all I can, as much as I can in the right balance that I know of in my life, but I can't control the outcome. This is what uh, metta mixed with equanimity helps us to understand. We offer all of our goodwill, but we really can't control the outcome because the outcome doesn't depend on us. It, it depends on innumerable factors, um, unthinkable factors from time immemorial, if your mind can get that big. So all beings have their journey, and it's not just this journey, it's, it's much bigger than this life. So just now, I mean, just in the past uh, half an hour, um, Feather, my cat, you've been hearing about Feather, my cat, for a long time, haven't you? Well, she's still alive. And she's probably, I don't know, we can't even determine her age anymore. The last we knew, she was like 23, 24, 25 years old. And she's still going strong. Well, a year and a half ago, we thought she was going to die, but she didn't. She waited for Steve and I to come back from Burma, and she's got, she's got all these caretakers. People fly in to take care of her, you know, when we're gone. And so... Um, but just now, you know, just in these last few days, she's been going downhill. So just on the phone with Ter- my daughter, Therese, our daughter, Therese, she actually works at the vet's office, and she said, well, she's spiraling downwards. That, that, those were her words. And, you know, we've been living with this for a while now, like really accepting that all beings have their journey. So the impact now on on my heart isn't so big because we've been working with that for a long time, that understanding of love and equanimity that she has her journey to take. And I don't know when it will be. I mean, you know, she could keep on going. And if she doesn't, then this is part of her journey to just keep on going. And it's my understanding that it's not her journey just in this life, but there, there may be more for her 
more for her journey. So to see it as, as a bigger process, so equanimity can get that big. If, if your heart can get that big, can go to that place, it can see the process as huge beyond our understanding. So it, it gives me a deep steadiness of mind to go there, of heart to go there. All beings have their journey. And um, whatever the journey is, I, my goodwill is there with it. So it's inclining the heart to that inner spacious balance that says, my love, this love, is big enough to include anything for you. That even if you die, my love is still there. That it, it doesn't make that die. And, and to, to see that those two go together, they're not separate things. That death doesn't mean the, mean the end of love. Sometimes, uh, for some people, it means that love is greater. I remember once that um, the people who used to own the house that uh, we moved into, that we now live in, he was a um, great man, David McClellan, um, one of the long-time religion and philosophy holders of wisdom at Harvard University. And when he passed away, his wife, Marion, I always remember this, it's coming to me clearly now, more clearly now again, is that um, he, she told us that he had passed away, and it, it was quite recent, you know, within a day or so. And she said, it's really interesting, she said, that when he was alive, of course, she understood the, the selflessness of love, but she understood it more when he passed away because she said that it didn't depend on his body being here, that that love didn't depend on a body. And so that selflessness, that immensity of uh, love came through that equanimity, that she could understand the bigness of her heart that way, that it did not exclude death. So it includes it all. It opens that immeasurable impartiality, opens to all of it, all of that. It gives the expansiveness to metta, to include the whole being, our own being, the being of others, all parts of ourselves, all parts of others, all parts of our life, their life, all parts of our life which includes death and their life as well, their death. So it breaks down the barriers of, of anything. Wherever we feel a barrier within our love, when we can bring in equanimity, there's a possibility for that barrier to melt, to not be there. So uh, this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, one of our the great translators of the 
Buddha's words from Pali into English. And he says about equanimity that it purifies loving-kindness. The function of equanimity is to see things impartially. Its manifestation is a subsiding of attraction and repulsion. Its proximate cause is the reflection on the fact that beings inherit the results of their actions or their karma. The perfection of equanimity should be considered thus. When there is no equanimity, the offensive actions performed by beings cause oscillation in the mind. And when the mind oscillates, it is impossible to practice the requisites of awakening. And even though mind has been softened with the moisture of loving-kindness, without equanimity, one cannot purify the requisites of enlightenment and cannot dedicate one's requisites of merit along with the results to furthering the welfare of beings. So equanimity is um, a very, very powerful part of our lives as human beings in connection with loving kindness, in connection with uh, compassion, also in connection with joy. So it's also a very strong factor that nourishes wisdom, the development of wisdom in our practice. It has great importance in terms of accessing wisdom or the opening of the mind to allow wisdom to come in. Because when we can see all sides, we can see the side of wisdom too, naturally. The Buddha would say that for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, it is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. So that that's a quote. It is a natural law to know and see things as they really are, to know the Dhamma. Equanimity brings forth wisdom, and that wisdom bears the fruit of liberation. There are two basic levels that we practice equanimity on. So the first level is one that we all know well, and that is equanimity as a protection from the eight worldly winds or the eight vicissitudes of life, the eight lokadamas. And they are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. Those are the eight. These are the external winds that trigger reactivity in our minds, within us. So whenever something of these eight factors happen outside of us, it triggers that reactivity inside of us. And reactivity is the far enemy of equanimity. So a simple example of this protection is when equanimity is present and allows wisdom can uh, wisdom to come into the picture, there's a clear understanding in actually a very compassionate way that 
gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, pain and pleasure, there is a clear understanding that this is part of the cycle of life. This is part of the weather patterns of the moment or the week or this part of our lives. It's just part of it. It it brings that kind of understanding into our lives. So we have a tendency when we have that wisdom to come in, we have a tendency to not, we may still react, but we won't react as strongly or as blindly when there is the protection of equanimity, when that comes into play. Because it dispels delusion, the delusion that everything has to stay beautiful, everything has to stay pleasurable, that everybody has to be good, that there should be no bad people in the world. Um, You know, and that's all delusion. The fact is that there are people that cause unwholesome results in, in this world, unwholesome and unpleasant results in this world. And that's, if we're not living with that truth, then there's not enough equanimity in our hearts, in our minds, if we're still idealizing how it should be. If there's no protection through a heart being big enough to accept all this, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, etc., then pleasure is a trigger for attachment to arise. And pain is a trigger for aversion or fear to arise. Just one simple example. So this is the reactivity to the uh, vicissitudes of life, to those eight worldly winds. So that reactivity really has two parts. The, sec- the, the two parts of reactivity are uh, aversion to what is painful and attachment to what is pleasurable. So in, in this particular Brahma Vihara um, or divine abode, <clears throat> the far enemy is, is two-parted and which includes both attachment and aversion. So that's on a kind of more mundane, uh, every, everyday level that we can see. But on a deeper level, equanimity can work as well, and it's oftentimes not a level that we bring our equanimity to. We think of bringing our equanimity or our non-reactivity to what's going on in the world outside of us. But we can forget that we can bring equanimity to what's going on inside of us. So what if the pain of attachment or the pain of despair has already arisen in our hearts in relationship to something that has happened in the world or in our families, for example? So when that reactivity has already come about, is already a reality in our hearts, the second 
level of equanimity that we can practice is bringing a big-heartedness, an open-heartedness, a balance, a spaciousness, a clear seeing to that very place that when there is pain or despair in our own hearts, can we accept that too? Do we have to add another arrow of suffering? You know, the first arrow is hard enough, and then we, we kind of sling another arrow and cause another level of suffering by not accepting with loving kindness, with spaciousness, that this too is part of the cycle of life. This too, this painful response to what's going on outside of ourselves, this despair, this aversion, this ill will, and stop it right there. Because when we don't stop it, then we act from that place. We act from a place of suffering instead of a place of clarity in our hearts. So this level where we judge ourselves, where we react to how we reacted, is a place that's often hidden, that we can bring a large measure of equanimity to when we can remember it. So this is what we'll be working on a lot in in our time together during our Brahma Vihara time uh, in the afternoon is where are we reacting in our hearts that we need to bring loving kindness, spaciousness of equanimity to that, to that place within ourselves. Because that's the nearest place of pain that we often act from but that we often don't see. So I'll just give you an example. Someone recently said something to me that I took as painful. I, I took within myself as painful. So not blaming it on that person, but um, who knows, that was in our way of saying it in Hawaii. That's that person's kuleana. Kuleana means it's, it's that person's karma to work out. But I took it in as painful, and I felt pushed out of um, a situation. Maybe, maybe in, in the realm of the vicissitudes, it was um, in the, like blame, feeling blamed or not good enough. So I reacted with aversion and ill will. So there, were, there was like two levels of pain for me. The level of uh, feeling that painful response to whatever I said, to an offering I made. And then there was a level of reactivity that I, I reacted outright and I said something. It wasn't right away, but I did say something. And then um, I felt the ill will in my own heart. And that was painful too. So I just felt two levels of pain. The, the level of pain to receive that pushing away and the level of pain 
to judge, um, to feel that ill will in my own heart, to judge that ill will in my own heart. So just reflecting on that and, and learning from it. And, you know, I've done this before. I'll probably do it again. And I say, well, when will I ever learn my lesson? You know, but I'm trying. And this is what we all do. And the more we bring attention to it, the more we can bring equanimity to some place, to some level that, that helps us to be in the world in a better way. The Buddha described this level, this quality, as abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. You know, when we finally come to the place of seeing, oh, that's how it is on this level. Well, that's how it is on that level, on all levels, from all sides. There can be moments of the absence of ill will. There can be moments of true loving-kindness, true um, ability to accept this is part of life, a sense of spaciousness and bigness to not exclude anything, to maybe forgive ourselves, to maybe forgive another, to be able to see the dangers of that. Um, Sometimes we learn, you know, I don't want to do that, you know, if, if, if that's what's hurtful to me. I certainly want to be aware of how it, I might do that to hurt others. So it said, the Buddha said, when liberation of mind by equanimity is developed, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeteer could make herself heard without difficulty in the four quarters, so too, when equanimity is developed, no limiting actions remain there. None persists there. So, just to make the point that We do act when we need to. And so um, it's not like we just say, that's how it is. I try to remember um, actual experiences that that I've had. So I know that stories um, make a difference. I, I can say something and it can go in as theory but when it goes in as a story and you can actually see it and experience it in your own shoes, then we really get the point. I know I do. So I was um, living in this house in this little village called Hali'i Maili, and I lived on a corner with my family. And uh, I could see that there was a stop sign in the car's outside would stop and turn left or right. We were kind of at a T-section. And um, this car stopped. And then I heard all this yelling and screaming. And then I heard in the back of the car, it was a little Volkswagen, in the back of the car, there was uh, a little boy and he was crying out loud because of the, there was a fight in the front seat. And so um, I thought it would stop, and I was just waiting and looking out of the window, and then I you know, saw that somebody was being hurt. 
And so I said, somebody's got to do something. And nobody was around, and I just couldn't let this happen. So I went to the car, and um, my friends tell me that I can be an Amazon woman when I want to. I'm so soft-hearted, but um, in Hawaii they, they call this Amazon woman, uh, I don't know, a titta, they say, that Kamala can be one of those. So I just felt that energy come up. And I went to the car, and I went around, and I opened the side of the door that the passenger was in, and she was down and being hit. And I said in loud voice, get out of the car. And I, you know, pulled her out, and I yelled at the person. I said, stop, stop it. And I, I don't know, I've done this before. Thank God I haven't been hurt, you know. And so I pulled her out of the car, and I pulled the little boy out of the car, and I said, let's go. And so I took her to my house right on the corner, and um, then the, the person left, and I said, okay, now you're safe now. Call the police. Well, she wouldn't call the police. You know, all beings are owners of their own karma. I can't control what she does. I can't totally keep her safe. I did what I could, and now it's up to her to go forth. So eventually she called someone to pick her up, and I don't know what happened after that. We do something about it, and then we do all we can do in the situation. And after that, it's, it's, it's really just up to that person. So we often get the wrong idea that it's a dry state of neutrality or this aloofness, which is the near enemy, this kind of aloof neutrality, um, apathy, indifference. But it, it really isn't. It's like you have the space in your mind to know what to do, to assess a situation, to really care about what's happening, and to do it. And then not to have any attachment to the result of what you're doing. So it's that deep inner balance. Um, this protects us from the in from indifference, from apathy. That balance that allows the bigness of our hearts to come in, to really care. So there's not a dullness, there's not a cold distance, there's not a callousness. It can really be palpable uh, for us in in a moving way. So resting the mind before it falls into extremes, the extreme of the far enemy, which is reactivity, the two-pronged reactivity of attachment or aversion, depending on whether it's pleasurable or painful, or the extreme of indifference or complacency, which is the near enemy. We can stand in the middle of all of it, you know, sometimes we hear the word upeka for equanimity. Upeka means like balance of mind. But there's another long com- compound word which is tatra majatata, 
which means to stand in the middle of it. To be able to, not from the outside and look in and say, yeah, that's the way it is, but to stand in the middle of it sometimes when we're actually there anyway and to see how it is, even from that part. I remember Ram Dass's, um he made a, a comment once, can your heart stay open in hell? You know, and for years I've examined that, tried to answer that question. Can my heart stay open in hell, in the hell realms? So it's this balance, like the ballast of a ship or a beautiful upright rock in a storm or that mountain. In practice, we get what we call yogi mind. You know, so as it relates to practice, Steve's uh, definition of yogi mind is the magnification of the insignificant to crisis proportion. So how many times have we, you know... Recently I was in, in retreat and I found a tick in my room. And so I just was, you know, for a day looking all over to see if I had any more ticks on my body or a tick bite or, you know, asking a friend of mine to see on my back if something itchy was. It, was, it just got so huge, you know. I thought I, I already had Lyme's disease and all of that. It was already gone way far beyond it needed to go. The first time I did an eight-precept retreat, um, I remember that I thought I would starve to death by not eating at night, you know. And there were a few of us who thought we might. So apparently you, I learned that you couldn't really take anything in, like cream with your... I drank coffee then. Cream with your coffee or even caffeine. This is the Burmese eight precepts until you could see the lines of your hand uh, at, at dawn. You know, so... I remember standing outside, Ramdas was in that retreat, standing outside with Ramdas waiting to see the lines in my hand, you know. I, I was so yogi mind that I would starve and I, I just needed that before I got to the first sitting or else I would faint. So resting the mind before it falls into extremes, this, this is what we're learning how to do and we really know, need to do that in, in our practice. We, we get, somebody asked in the go-round today or the, the ones who are leaving that, what's the fast track, you know, to, on, and, you know, I would say that if you can employ equanimity in your practice, if you can really bring that in, that makes everything easier and it, it brings in wisdom in, in a way that's, I don't know if it, I can't say faster because it depends on everybody's karma. But it might be faster for me, for you. Individually it might. I don't know collectively what it, but it's a good one to bring in. So I want to end with this, um, a vision that I've imparted to you some of you before that I've held that gives me at least a visceral sense when I, when I bring it forth it gives me a visceral sense of what equanimity 
is, and it's it's a memory I have of one of the last times I was with uh, my first teacher, my first Dharma teacher, Manindraji, who passed away about three years ago. And it was my last day in India with him, not my uh, during this particular visit. And we were um, on the Ganges River and in Varanasi, and we were taking a boat out so that we could see the sunrise. And um, it was a particularly clear and beautiful morning, and the sun hadn't come up yet, and we hired a boat, and so we were going down the Ganges River, and on my right was the site of the burning ghats where they burned the bodies and um, we the boat was close enough so that you could see you know the at some places there were these pyres of wood and they would set fire to them of course and you could see the bodies burning and the people all around the families in mourning and so here on my right was death and on my left was the new life, you know, the rising sun, um, big, huge ball over the horizon next to the river. The hugeness of that really stays in my heart, just how big that is, life and death within that whole horizon. And so also on my right uh, were the, the families who were going through their sorrow and the tears and the wailing and the crying and, you know, the brokenness that you see when that happens. And on my left was um, the joy, you know, it was with Manindraji and the, just the joy of having him next to me. And it was really the last time that I had him next to me, that he wasn't in bed, that he was actually alive and still going strong. And so the joy of having him next to me and the appreciation of having uh, a wonderful teacher and all of that. And then the despair, you know, which brought about also compassion of seeing that uh, the, the death on my right side and the happiness the sense of happiness that I had for my friends that were with me also on that boat ride that were happy that they could be there that happy could be with Manindraji and I, Manindraji was happy and I felt happy for all of them also not just for myself so there was this beauty on one side and there was this rawness on the other side. And somehow with the balance of all of that and taking in all of that and the bigness of all of that, and maybe a lot was because that I had the stability of the strong teacher beside me that my heart could feel really big. And I, I really felt that sense of equanimity in my heart. So I bring that forth when when it's hard sometimes and it gives me a lot of um, 
connection with what's already there in my in my heart and mind. So I'd like to end with this. This is a poem by William Stafford, and it's in his book, The Way It Is. There's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. But it is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding, but you don't ever let go of the thread. So my words are that this thread is equanimity. It helps us get through times unfolding. So let's sit for a moment. <clears throat> 